Welcome to the Latino Card. We're recording from the Voice Studios. I'm JJ Saldana. I'm Nicole Foy, and we are missing Rebecca today. She's actually right here in the studio, but our dear producer Ash is in meetings. And so Rebecca is La Jefa today and making sure we sound great in the studio so Ash can make us sound better in the editing. So <laughs> um, so she is she will come back next episode. But today in the studio, we are talking to two ladies from the ACLU of Idaho who have agreed to join us and talk a little bit about their work. We have Kathy Griesmeyer and Ruby Mendez. So thank you so much, you guys, for joining us today. I'm so fanboying out right now. You guys love your work. (laughs) We're really excited to be here. We're big fans. And the Mm -hmm. office sends their greetings. Slash they were jealous that it was Ruby and I who got to be here (laughs) and the whole rest of them. Well, can you guys... Introduce yourselves and tell us what um, what you do at the ACLU of Idaho. So my name is Ruby Mendez Mota. I am the advocacy fellow at the ACLU. This is Kathy Grismeyer. I'm the policy director with the ACLU. I've been with the ACLU actually since November of 2010. It was my very first job outside of college. I was a major ACLU fan girl at the University of Oregon and basically tried whichever job opportunity that was available. I was willing to do it even being an attorney, despite having zero law school experience or bar license. But um, started back in 2010 and worked my way into our policy director position. So I lead all of our legislative and lobbying work at the State House. So really thankful for session to be over so we can be here talking about all of our victories this year because there were quite a few. Yeah, And we're really happy that you're here with us today is because we had a very busy, very newsy session. And we were hoping that you guys could kind of break down, um, at least from the ACLU of Idaho's perspective, what were you guys working on? What happened in this session that people should know about? And yeah, what were what were your victories? Gosh, well, where do we start? (laughs) In Idaho, I mean, there are so many social justice issues that I think in some ways fly under the radar and yet also super impact people's everyday lives in this state, whether it be healthcare for women, whether it be your ability to go out and manage your life with your partner, if you're gay or bisexual or transgender, if you are somebody returning to our community, having been incarcerated and you're trying to find a job. You know, there are so many issues that we work on that touch, I think, just everyday Idahoans' lives. Um, I would say probably the two biggest things Um, I can kick off some of our criminal justice work, and Ruby's leading a lot of that organizing. But this year, I think we spend most of our time at the ACLU really prioritizing criminal justice issues. We're one of a few organizations who tracks criminal justice-related issues. We're really involved with prisoner rights issues through our legal program and really recognizing that this state just has an addiction to incarceration. We have one of the highest incarceration rates in the country. I think we're like 13th in the country, yet we have one of the lowest crime rates in the country. And we definitely have numbers that are ballooning um, compared to our Western states or other rural conservative states in the region. Because of that, we have 700-plus people Um, in a private prison facility on the border of Texas and Mexico right now that I'll also mention houses immigrant detainees um, that's run by a private prison company called GeoCorp. Our jails are overcrowded. Our prisons are overcrowded. And so we really try to come in every session and and bring that perspective to the state house and talk about the people's lives that are impacted. It's not just 
the person who's in prison or in jail, but it's their families, it's their children, and it takes a toll on our economy and on our communities because we really incarcerate, despite being a pretty predominantly white state, we are over-incarcerating black community members, we are over-incarcerating Latinx folks, we are over-incarcerating American Indian community members, and so we're definitely up there in terms of racial disparities as well in our prison system. This year, I think probably our biggest hope was around mandatory minimum sentencing reform. It's something we've been working on for three years with folks from the Idaho Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, with the Idaho Freedom Foundation, and with our bill sponsors, Representative Alana Rubel and Brian Zollinger. And there was a lot of promise. There was a really great public hearing in the House Judiciary Committee. I mean, just hours of testimony from parents coming in and talking about their children who have, you know, addiction-related issues, who are being criminalized under the drug trafficking statutes. I think it's always important to note that the drug trafficking statutes in Idaho that are connected to mandatory prison sentences have to deal with weight, not with anyone's intent to deliver or distribute drugs. And so if you are somebody who has a high tolerance to whatever criminalized drug of your choice, whether it be meth, marijuana, heroin, etc. If you have a high enough tolerance and you have a, a supply for yourself on your person, when you interact with law enforcement, you're going to trigger a trafficking violation, which is a felony, which will result in a mandatory jail sentence in Idaho. And so you hear this rhetoric coming from prosecutors talking about these drug kingpins coming in, these cartels, which I always like to take a moment and pause and say how racist, <laughs> because we're really profiling communities of color, especially Latinx communities in this state. Um, think about all of the, you know, gang-related monitoring that happens, especially in Canyon County. Um, so let's not forget that intersection on this issue. But they're talking about these, quote, drug cartels or these drug kingpins. We're really talking about people who have addiction, who aren't able to get health care in the community, whether they can't afford it, and also because we just don't have community resources here that are large enough to handle the capacity of folks who need treatment. And we're sending them to prison where they'll go away for five plus years and they won't get any rehabilitation treatment until they're eligible to go before the parole board, which happens very late in their sentence. So we're, we're literally just warehousing drug addicts in our prisons. And the House was really great, voted it out of committee, voted it off the House floor. And then we ran into major opposition in the Senate Judiciary Committee. The chairman there, Senator Todd Lakey, who is a former prosecutor, has very close relationships with the Idaho Prosecuting Attorneys Association. And he, one person, outright blocked any potential hope or consideration for this bill. And so this bill ended up going nowhere. I think it's important to note the power that one chairman has in terms of blocking really well-researched bipartisan support um, that could have begun to reduce the number of people of prison, could have reduced taxpayer dollars as it related to incarceration. We could have reinvested those dollars in community sentencing options, in substance abuse treatment, and we'll wait another year to come back and try and address this issue again. And then Ruby, I think, has a really cool project as it relates to some criminal justice organizing. So I'm going to pass it over to Ruby. All right. Well, a lot of the work that I help, um, aside from lobbying, is organizing and really bringing out folks who come and participate in the legislative session. And so really the goal is to put a human face to the issue and putting humanity back into the whole issue of incarceration and remembering these are fathers, these are mothers, these are siblings, these are community members. They 
are just part of our society and we need to recognize that we need to help them and also create a system that is able for them to reintegrate back into society. So we um, decided to do a criminal justice lobby day, which um, for those that are not familiar with lobby days, it's when you invite folks to come to the state house and talk to um, your own representative or representatives within the committees that um, according to whatever issue you are working on and you're really advocating for example mandatory minimums and so we did our lobby days in February and we were literally expecting maybe 10 15 people <laughs> like this is a very new issue to us we're organizing we're you know not sure how this community will respond because historically this community has never organized here in Idaho and so, you know, time comes, we're excited, and we literally had 45 individuals come to our lobby day training. And wow. yeah, it was amazing. And I would say maybe two or three, not including staff, were not directly impacted by the criminal justice system. They either had a loved one that was incarcerated or they themselves have been through the process. And it was a very powerful moment where you just kind of realize the necessity, the the desire, the hunger for them to really share their stories and advocate for themselves and their loved ones. And our introduction literally lasted an hour. <laughs> we did, you know, an intro. We were expecting, oh, you know, share, share something about yourself. And it literally became a moment for um, people to feel safe and share the stories and relate and connect with others that are going through the same process or understand. It was really powerful. And then I am just given the comments from some of the legislatures. They're like, wow, like I've, I've never seen this before. And so given that we were, you know, we had other organizations also doing lobby days, but you could just tell that our folks were on top of it. And it was just really motivating to see that, especially individuals that we had two gentlemen that literally were released maybe three weeks before, oh, and wow. they were incarcerated, I would say. Like decades. Decades. Like 20, 30 years. Yeah. It was just really powerful to see how organizing and providing the right tools to these individuals can really put a face to the issue and really help individuals understand the power that we have when we get together and we rally up and we fight for an issue. Our focus at the ACLU is knowing that we have access to folks in decision-making positions, right? Mm -hmm. Like we have a legal team that can connect in the court system. Ruby and I are at the state house and we have relationships with lawmakers and other organizations and lobbying groups, but really the power comes from the people, mm -hmm. right? Like we have this program called People Power, which is like super appropriately named, <laughs> where it's really connecting folks who are most directly impacted by an issue with people who have the power to make a policy change and reminding them that they have an accountability component to their jobs and hearing from these folks and that their stories are just so powerful, right? I can go in and I can debate data and statistics all we want, right? We live in this world of like, I don't even want to repeat the, the terms that have been like floating around in the national rhetoric from mm -hmm. a certain somebody. Um, <laughs> but you can't get up there and deny somebody's story, right? Because that's someone's lived experience. And then to do that, I think really, if you were to do that, you really show your inhumanity <laughs> in the face of people really bravely coming out and saying, you know, this is my experience and this is how it impacted me and my family. And there's a lot of power in that. And like Ruby was saying at the lobby day, right, you know, we 
we did an icebreaker. We budgeted like 20 minutes. <laughs> we spent an hour, 20 minutes <laughs> going through introductions because folks just really needed to hear like, oh my gosh, I've had the same experience. My family's gone through the same thing. I'm not alone. Then there's a lot of us and 45 people is a lot of people. But, mm -hmm. you know, we have 8000 people in prison right now and several hundred in our jails and like multiple thousands on probation and parole. Like those are a lot of families. And when you network all that out, right, like that's a pretty significant portion of the state's population. So what else happened in the session? I mean, I know that a lot happened. Yeah, it was a long yeah, session. session. Yeah. Anything else that you'd like to highlight? Oh, yes. We spent the last <laughs> month of session combating clearly unconstitutional bills related to trying to take away the public's access to the ballot initiative process. Not only is it an, uh, a right under our Idaho Constitution, but we also have the right under the First Amendment to petition and redress our government. And so it's a, it's a clear federally and state constitutionally protected issue. And yet lawmakers were pretty hellbent on trying to essentially nullify any access to the ballot initiative process. So right now in Idaho, in order for a ballot initiative to qualify to go before a voter, um, you have to have 6% um, of the state's registered electors um, sign a petition. What's interesting to note about that is many states look at a percentage threshold of ballots cast, not of potential voters. Ballots cast will always be a lower number than potential registered voters. So have a pretty high mark to begin with. You have to collect signatures from 18 out of 35 legislative districts right now, and you have about 18 months to collect signatures. It's not impossible, as we saw this last year with the Medicaid expansion question on the ballot, but it is difficult and it does rely significantly on people power, um, not to be confused with the ACLU's People Power Program, <laughs> but, you know, a lot of folks having to connect and engage on the issue. So really intense volunteer ran programs and some financial investment, whether it be from in-state or out of state, because it does cost money to travel and be on the road. You know, you can't you have to drive a lot of places. You can't just like fly and flying gets expensive here within the state. And so it's it's already difficult. And we would argue, based on our legal analysis, that the current law is likely unconstitutional because of a very particular provision under the 14th Amendment. You have this this principle called the one person, one vote principle. Um, and what this legislative district requirement that we have right now um, does is it really jeopardizes that perspective. So we're if we're looking at the distribution of registered voters between legislative districts. I'll take, for example, District 14, which happens to be Senator Scott Gross district. He was oh. the Senate sponsor for this bill. He has the highest number of registered voters in the state at about 38 or 37,000 Idahoans. Compared with District 27, which is like Burley, Oakley area, um, so the Speaker's district, um, at about 17,000 voters. So when you look at this population distribution as well as the distribution in terms of registered voters. Clearly qualifying something in District 27 is going to be much easier than qualifying a ballot initiative in District 14 because it takes almost double the amount of signatures to qualify that district. So that one person, one vote principle really gets thrown out here because it's really like for every one voter in District 27, you need about two plus in District 14. Mm -hmm. So we think there's a strong legal argument to be made to challenge the current law. When you throw in what they were proposing, which was requiring districts signatures in 32 out of 35 districts, 10% of registered electors, and you had six months to do it, 
it's very clear that that proposal was unconstitutional um, and really, again, ignored that 14th Amendment principle. And then you have some First Amendment challenges as well, because it would have been nearly impossible to work to, you know, get a ballot initiative qualified here without significant investment, really, from out of state, likely. Um this issue was probably the most frustrating to watch. I've never seen an issue driven by lawmakers that was so intent on ignoring the will of the people. Was it just lawmakers or who else was behind this move? You definitely had some lobbyist groups who were involved. Mm-hmm. So you had um, Farm Bureau of Idaho who was engaged. You had food producers of Idaho. You had um, oh, I'm, the other names are just kind of going out of my head. But That's there okay. are definitely some big you know, lobby interests that were engaged there who I think were concerned that, you know, minimum wage might come or restrictions on how we do farming or um, labor practices might get put before ballot, which is really (laughs) disheartening in that they would try and reduce public participation in that way. Um, But you had maneuvering in the legislature that was absent, you know, public hearings. You had a veto that happened, which was a really great victory with these bills. And then you had lawmakers, I mean, literally within four hours of the governor's veto coming out on these two bills, intent to reintroduce new bills the following Monday. You know, so really trying to circumvent the process that's there for a veto override. You had procedural challenges in terms of how bills were being introduced in committee, bills being passed straight to the House floor without any public comment period, despite like hundreds of people showing up. I think you know, for us as advocates, talking to folks and encouraging them to come in and be active, you like it makes that case a little bit harder in some ways because there was such an intent to really ignore what folks had to say. Yeah. So as the only two Latinx that I know of that are at the Capitol every day during session, how I mean, do you see a lot of Latino people coming into the Capitol during legislative session? to testify, to listen? Unfortunately, no. And the reality is our Latinx community is working during those hours. I mean, it's very hard for a lot of the community members to turn out and show up. I mean, they'd have to ask for a day off when, you know, we would do organizing before for immigration work. I mean, a lot of folks have to ask permission to come and be able to share their stories. And also there's a language barrier. A lot of folks think, well, I only speak Spanish. it doesn't matter. You should still go. Yeah. And But it's just, again, that thinking or the thought of that the Capitol building is not accessible and the Capitol building is of the people and for the people. And it's really this community, especially in Idaho, is often unfairly criticized for not being involved, like civically engaged, mm-hmm. not being politically involved um, in your guys's work. How do you, I mean, first of all, what do you think about that? Like, do you think that's a fair assessment? And also, how do you combat some of those obstacles that just are just there that make it impossible, even if someone does want to be civically engaged? I think those criticisms ignore the reality of the privilege that it takes, really, to be at the state house. You know, Ruby and I have a career where we're... it is something that we personally feel very passionate about, but it's Mm -hmm. also our job, right? So we have the opportunity to be there. Like Ruby said, right, folks are working, they're putting food on the table, there are language barriers. I mean, that building is meant for folks who have individual wealth, who are not working during the day, who have an English proficiency, right, and who have an understanding and familiarity of the power dynamics that play in that building. 
And that's something that's just, I don't think, really commonly discussed in the Latinx community. And in some ways, probably rightfully so, because, you know, think about the needs, the hierarchy needs. There are more important and pressing issues um, going on in the Latinx community, you know, taking care of your family and being with your faith community and going to work and, you know, dealing with school not to mention like racism and prejudice that like is runs really rampant here on the state despite us thinking oh we're just so nice we are but we're also we really don't understand you know different communities here that really aren't white um than anglo so there's definitely i think a need for more folks to get engaged and Mm -hmm. we're trying you know to make it as accessible as possible knowing that we're also you know the legislature runs eight to five monday through friday and most of our community works non-traditional hours. Exactly. Well, and one of the one of the points of this podcast in particular is to try to elevate Latino voices in the state who are doing big things, involved in um, involved in places of power, or just um, doing things that should be recognized. And so I was I would really I'm super excited to have both of you guys on because you are two Latinas working in a very white state capital white male yeah and and especially and it's it's pretty significant because um as we've discussed on previous podcasts and plenty of other people have pointed out that um the latino community in idaho does not have good representation at almost every level of government and so i was wondering to hear, wanted to hear from both of you to what is it like as a Latinas to be to be working in in this area, and um, yeah, and and why do you do what you do? Who wants to answer that? <laughs> <laughs> so many feelings. I, you know, I've shared a lot of my thoughts with Kathy as you know I've experienced becoming a full time lobbyist with the ACLU. I've been at the State House previous with another organization I was involved with organizing, grassroots organizing. Um, but it's different when you're there full time. <laughs> and being inside the State House, one feels proud, but at the same time saddened because you wanna see other individuals that look like you, understand your culture, understand your community and that is able to represent them in a way that reflects their needs. And I feel if if that were possible, and it is possible, and I hope <laughs> that we can get to there one day, then perhaps our elected officials would start thinking differently and view our community differently. And so when I'm at the State House, yeah, I'm on me siento orgullosa. I'm like, heck yeah. It's like, I'm a, I'm a daughter of immigrant parents. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. and I'm here and I'm, I'm trying to represent. But at the same time, you know, you do feel intimidated because these are individuals in power. And when they see you, they see their understanding of who a Latino person is. And so you really have to start breaking those barriers and start really make them understand. It's like, I, deserve to be here as much as you do. And so that's, those are my thoughts. Uh, Kathy, you take the mic now. <laughs> I mean, for me as a, a white passing, like mixed race Latina, you know, I have a mom who came to the U.S. when she was in high school from Mexico. And I have a dad who's from upstate New York, just white American guy. And so, uh, you know, growing up here, 
having this like mixed culture influence, I was really submersed in white American suburban culture. And so really recognizing that I carry a lot of privilege walking into the state house as a white passing person who people might look and maybe not necessarily guess that my mother was a farm worker who worked in El Centro and was a part of the farm workers union, you know, movement when she came to the U S and that that's my family history. Um, because of the way I look and how I communicate and kind of the presence I bring. And so I think for me, there's a a real sense of responsibility to represent the community that I come from that doesn't have a voice. And then I get to leverage my access in that building to talk about those issues. And also I, you know, trying to personalize how we come to this work. So talking about my grandparents organizing and protesting and, and I'm proud that my mother and my grandparents and my aunts and uncles were farm workers. Like, for me, I take a lot of pride from that and recognizing like I am a walking embodiment of the American dream that you think you know, but you maybe don't really know. Mm-hmm. And the policies that you're trying to enact harm, you know, family members like mine and Rubies and people in this room. And so for me, it's a sense of responsibility and duty to like elevate those stories, but to also identify access points for people to come in and um you know, I have a story, but there are also a ton of much more impactful stories here. So knowing how to leverage, like, let's bring those folks in and connect them to people who really need to hear their stories. And as you work with, you know, doing more and more organizing work in the Latino community and Spanish, especially like maybe primarily Spanish speaking communities, um, we talk a lot about, you know, that Latinos in Idaho care about everything that other people do in Idaho. But what have you guys found? What do the Latinos that you guys interact with care about? I think one of the things that we have encountered was how to vote, how to participate, how to register to vote, where to vote. Can I get a ballot in my language or can I take someone to the polling place to interpret? And so we are finding a lot of individuals that are interested in the electorate process. I would say, too, you know, family, safety and security, right, especially as we think about, like, immigration-related issues. Um, we were providing support for um, a demonstration that happened out at Wilder Elementary School last fall with when Ivanka Trump and Tim Cook were in town. And we heard a lot of families talking about language barriers with school administration and just the divide between the Latinx community and immigrant community and white students in terms of school discipline issues, um, school access to technology, um, grades, right? So like everybody cares about education and education definitely manifests itself, maybe in a little bit of a different way when you're looking at the Latinx community. And so there's commonalities, but there's also different experiences within the same like issue. One last question before we wrap up. What would you say if somebody is listening to this podcast and is wondering, like, is there a place for me? Like, does my voice really matter? You know, should I get involved? How do I be like Kathy and Ruby? Like, (laughs) definitely volunteer. Um, Get involved in what you're passionate about. If you, you know, want to get involved in advocacy and all the issues that we cover. I mean, there's a vast amount of issues that we do, but if you know you're passionate about it, volunteer with us. There will be internship opportunities maybe down the road. Um, but you just never know what doors may open and what networking that can happen once you get involved to really, you know, grow your passion and be the voice for your community, right? Because we like we represent different types of a community, right? Not one person represents the whole Latinx right. community, right? We are, mm-hmm. you know, different individuals. We have different experiences, life experiences. So 
definitely know that one, get involved, two, your story matters, share it, be vocal, don't be afraid to be able to be bold about it and and share it with others that perhaps are not aware of your story. I have this vision of what the legislature will look like down the road. Like as a relatively young woman, mixed race lobbyist at the state house, a, a nonprofit lobbyist also too. You know, I am not in the majority as it relates to either lobbyists or lawmakers that are <laughs> in that building all the time. And yet my favorite days are the ones where we have community groups come in and they just fill up space at the state house. To me, that's like the most beautiful sight is to just know like the people's house is full of people. And to also, you know, if folks want to connect and be involved in policy related issues, like we need more advocates that reflect this community, that reflect women, that reflect young people, that reflect students, that reflect non-English speaking folks, LGBTQ folks, right? Like there's a lot that's missing from the state house. And so if you are in any of those communities or have those identities, you know, reach out to myself or Ruby. Like we'd love to connect you because I think the world will really change when we have more people in the building that look like the communities we're trying to serve. But if we can do anything to help knock down those barriers and be an entry point for folks, like please let us be that resource. What's the best way for people to connect with you guys? You can visit our website at ACLUidaho.org or you can email us at admin at ACLUidaho.org. Great. Well, thank you again, both of you, yes, for taking the time. Us. I'll was, stop fanboying yeah. now. <laughs> no, we're fangirling over here. Yes, we were just so excited. Like, when, it's, when are we going to come? We're right like, oh God, we got an invite to Latino card. We are really cool. We got a prep. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank well, you. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in to another episode of the Latino card. See you later. Hasta luego.